of the Michael Seibel episode of the Series B show hosted by me, Brandon Jones. In part two, Michael kind of broke down his founding experience, uh, taking the company he founded, splitting it into three other companies with his co-founders, uh, two of which went on to really successful exits. And he kind of shared some of the tricks in, of the trade uh, being a founder. In part three, we'll talk a little bit more about what Michael's working on today and his role as, the, uh, as a partner at Y Combinator, uh, which is a huge hugely influential startup accelerator um, out here in the Bay Area in Silicon Valley. Um, and also, like, wh what are the changes that he wants to make in the world? His disillusionment, disillusionment with politics, um, you know, some of his ideas for fixing the lack of diversity in tech, a lot of other really good stuff. So, uh, so tune in. After the acquisition of Twitch, everyone is kind of, it was, there was no um, having to stay around for a period of time with the Twitch acquisition. Well, remember at that point, Emmett's the only one of the four co-founders who's right. still there. He said, Emmett, right. Emmett is still there. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, so that, Amazon did a great job with Twitch. They structured the acquisition like uh, Zappos. Um, and so, you know, Twitch is run as this independent mm -hmm. kind of uh, so It's still kind of his, his, his yeah. baby. So still. he's still growing it and it's still growing and making more money and doing well. And you guys now have decisions to make around what's next. All young guys, all have made a decent chunk of change. And... Well, you know. Kyle's still stuck at GM. So Kyle and Emmett well, well, were locked down for the But he while. started that after Twitch was acquired, right? Oh, I don't remember the... Let me think about the exact timing there. Because that was another quick turnaround situation where I imagine he pretty much started the company and it was acquired with, all within a year. No, 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 no. Two no? and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Two and a half years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I don't remember when Kyle went through YC, but my gut tells me... He's, oh God, it was either right before or right after the Twitch acquisition, and I do not remember which okay. one. Um, but he already knew that's kind of what he wanted to focus his energies on at that point. Um, yeah. yeah. And then and then you say, well, what do you say to yourself when you've kind of... Oh, at Autodesk, yeah. So when I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next, you know, Amin and Guillaume and I had talked, and there was this idea I was bouncing around on building Palantir for the developing world. And basically the idea being that um, a lot of people think these developing world governments are both incompetent and corrupt. Um, but what happens if they just don't have good modern software? And in kind of Western countries, they have like infinite educated bureaucracy to deal with these issues. Um, and maybe software can help these guys. And so the you know, Amin Guillaume and I were kind of throwing that idea around, you know, whatever. It was just a random idea. And um, then um, Sam came by and, uh, you know, asked to, to kind of meet up. And this was in kind of the spring of 2014. And um, he told me that YC was about to go through some changes and that PG wanted to step back and wanted Sam to take over. PG is Paul Graham, the original yeah, founder, founder of Y Combinator in yep. Boston. Yep. Um, and uh, and I should say co-founder because Jessica and um, 
Trevor and Robert Morris were the other founders. Mm-hmm. And um, Sam wanted to run YC uh, differently. He wanted uh, to recruit a new set of partners and expand the kind of partner group and to make all the partners equal, make him and all the partners equal. Mm-hmm. And wanted me to join his partner. And uh, you know that was tricky on two fronts. One, because um, we were kind of bouncing around this idea. And two, because um, my plan was to do a five-month trip around the world with my then-girlfriend and propose. Wow. And, decisions, uh, decisions. Yeah, so that was tricky. It took a little bit of time to kind of figure things out. But in the end, um, I decided to work at YC because kind of one, it was like my startup family. You know, there's just so many of my friends have gone through YC. I've just been around it for so long. Um, and, you know, it's just, I kind of, all of the positive things about the startup community, giving back, helping each other, so on and so forth, all of that kind of runs through YC for mm-hmm. me. I kind of see it as my startup community. Um, two, you know, I was thinking, this is probably a better job to have kids and a family with. Going back to your, your original framework around you know, 10, 10, 10. Exactly. This is kind of supposed to be my family 10. Yep. Um, and three, I was excited by the new structure. And I was excited to explore ways that YC can kind of grow and evolve. Hmm. And, you know, Sam and PG had kind of talked about what would it take to make YC a 100-year institution, you know, something more akin to a university. And that's really an interesting challenge. That is interesting. Very interesting. Um, but I told him that I couldn't join right away because I still had to do this trip. And he was like, no problem. So we did our trip, and then um, I literally was reading applications right before I proposed. I proposed like at the very end of the trip, at the last the last week of the trip, and YC applications were due, and so we had to read applications. And my now wife was like, what? "Reading applications? <laughs> we were like on some island in the Philippines." And then I remember sending an email into everyone, and we're all supposed to read five hundred applications. So get, just so people know, how yeah. crazy is the the app? Um, it's pretty crazy. 6,000 companies apply. And in about two weeks, we've got to process through all 6,000 applications and choose the 500 or so that'll be accepted for interviews. And so you have 12 people reviewing 6,000 applications. We are, our alumni also help. Okay. Um, and so, yeah. And so you're, you're so dealing with your portion of these applications. I'm dealing with my portion while I'm at this kind of beach resort. Right. And then I email in to everyone saying, um, I'm really sorry. Like I can only read 450 because I have to go propose. <laughs> and they email back and like that's it's a good excuse. <laughs> that works. Yeah. But next time you better hit your number. And so um, yeah. So congratulations by the way. Thank I had you. an opportunity to meet your your wonderful um, wife, and you guys just had an anniversary. Um, no, no. Our anniversary is on October. Oh, sorry. That's the anniversary of your bachelor party. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> yes. We'll take that offline. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, 10, 10, 15. So our anniversary is 10, 10, 16. It's coming up. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so <coughs> then I joined up and um, kind of hit the ground running. I'd been a part-time partner at Y Combinator since basically right after the acquisition. Since but what does that mean? Um, do office, doing offsides with companies, um, participating in interviews. And do you get, you know, obviously you mentioned that he came in with a new structure where partners are equal, et cetera. Yeah. And in a part-time situation, do you able, are you able to enjoy some of those benefits as well? You get some equity, but you don't really do it for the equity. Got it. Um, you get a very small amount of equity. Got you it. mostly just do it to, to give back. And okay. so um, 
I already kind of knew about half of the job of partner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of came in, um, hit the ground running, and then um, been doing it ever since. So you're not even 35 yet, right? No. And uh, again, we just walked through, I mean, an unbelievable a set of life experiences to this stuff. point. So yeah. you've, been, you've been very, very busy and successful. Don't feel very busy, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, what? yeah, so. Let's talk about the future. And when yeah. I say the future, I want to put in a few buckets. Uh, one, obviously, you're deeply embedded in tech. Yep. Where you sit in y- NYC, you're seeing the, the best and brightest of ideas, people, um, everything. Then there's just the life piece in terms of like, what are you excited about? Uh, you know, around in life in general. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start off with the second piece, yep. life in general. Um, you mentioned politics. This is something that's been on your mind from the early days of, of college. Yeah. Uh, even when you kind of were toying around an idea, Palantir for the developing world, that obviously oh, kind of intersects. Politics. No. <laughs> that intersects with the political sphere. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you can't deny that. Yeah. Um, what are you thinking about as, as far as this kind of like post YC life where you have? You know, I mean, you have so many years left. You have 40 years left career-wise. Um, what, what, what do you want to accomplish? In much the same way that kind of law got beaten out of me from my experience at Yale, I think that in the past 10 years, politics has almost been beaten out of me. Mm, um, that's actually kind of a scary thought. Yeah, I think that... Um, when I felt When I went to school, I felt like there was still this feeling especially around Obama, that the best and brightest should do public service. And during kind of the second half of Obama, once kind of there became this gridlock in Washington, couldn't really do anything. um, So many of my friends became disillusioned with government Mm -hmm. as a way that could create solutions, Um, either by doing more or by less, but just Mm -hmm. by doing, you know, by by, by changing. and I think that you know this current election season isn't really helping that feeling. So, um, so it's weird to feel as though to grow up feeling as though government can produce um, significant changes in people's lives, and then kind of getting disillusioned and realizing that you know it doesn't, mm. um, or at least there are many situations where it doesn't choose to. Mm. Um, and so that was frustrating. And so. Um, with that being said, like, I don't want to, like, pre-decide anything, you know. There are kind of these 10-year plans, and I feel so sad saying I have 10-year plans because it sounds like <laughs> someone told me to have, like, goals in life No, but if, if it works, it works. But it, it, is working it worked, you. yeah. So, you know, this one is family. And so for me, it's more thinking about how I want to do um, family stuff. You know, mm-hmm. that's, I think, you know, where my brain is right now. And I've got two very young siblings, um, you know, 18 and 23. And so you know, when I left the house, my brother was two years old. Which is also kind of interesting. <laughs> Both same parents? Same parents, yeah. That type of gap, how does that happen? Um, my parents had me when they were very young. I think it was 23 and 25 or mm-hmm. something like that. And then um, I kind of forced my dad, apparently, to kind of get his act together. He went back to school yada 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 um, and they kind of waited until they felt like they were ready to have another kid and that took 10 years got it and then uh, my dad always wanted to have three so yeah, yeah. got it done yeah so just just by the skin of his teeth so I want, I want to double click on something you said mm-hmm. uh, around basically the idea of politics has almost gotten beaten out of you as a solution yeah what is the 
inverse of that. So what is now stepping up to fill kind of the, the purpose or the solution tool, the vessel that now can do what politics is not doing? So strangely enough, um, I always say that whenever I have ideas, if I wait long enough, they um, apply to what I say. <laughs> and uh, I've had two ideas at the intersection of startups and politics. And um, one was this Palantir for developing countries, which um, applied and got into YC and was in my group and it's now doing very well. <laughs> so they, they literally independently kind of came up with something similar. Yep. Wow. Uh, a company called uh, Zenesis. Love those guys. Okay. Um, the second idea was a way that um, we could get universal uh, voter registration and voter turnout. Uh, or at least the idea of using technology to do that. Mm -hmm. And there's a company in this batch called vote.org <laughs> trying yeah. to do that. Yeah. So if I wait around long enough. Um, so long story short, I think it's, um, you know, I apply a startup model. Um, I just feel as though startups can break through bureaucracy. And I've witnessed it with Airbnb and I've witnessed it with, with, um, with Uber. Um, and... Um, yeah, I just I think the big thing that's different with me growing up and feeling that government can solve problems and me today is the internet hmm. and the ability to put hundreds of millions of people on a platform in a relatively short period of time used to be the government was the only thing that could do that sort of thing. Yeah, it was funny. I was um, I was two weekends ago in this thing called Aspen Socrates Seminars in Aspen, where you just talk about kind of some of these current. Uh, events in with a group of smart people and people were saying it's almost so easy to mobilize a bunch of folks around like a cause nowadays online yeah that the idea of what a grassroots effort now is is actually lazy compared to what it was before it's yeah, too easy yeah, yeah. people yeah. will sign something before they even know what it's really about now <laughs> um and then you think about how for example uh in the headlines in the times today people are saying russia actually leak was behind the leak of the dnc uh, emails, which in a lot of ways is swaying people's emotions around a very important election. Yeah. And so tech is definitely a big presence as far as how things are getting, you know, getting done. What is your perspective on tech being used for good, being used for bad? Like, how does tech really drive or or make does it make it better? Does it make it worse? Like, what, what is the net impact of tech on, on where things are politically? So I feel like... <clears throat> I think that like you see these kind of phases where in my mind tech goes from like outward looking to inward looking to outward looking to inward looking. And like my experience of that was like the first kind of web 1.0, web 2.0 and then what we have today. And I feel like my experience of that was, you know, a web 1.0 feeling of we're going to take a lot of the basic services that you're, you're supposed to use and bring them online, banks and so on and so forth, e-commerce. Kind of web 2.0 is like, we're gonna live in like an online world, um, you know, and like try to bring communication and connectivity and friendship and community online, Facebooks and Twitter, so on and so forth. And this kind of like 3.0 is kind of looking back out again and saying like, what real world problems can we solve? You see Airbnb and, mm -hmm. and um, and uh, Uber and, and, and those sort of folks. And 
you know, that's at least been my experience. Also, that's a very consumer-focused experience. Right. So I probably can't classify those, those trends outside of consumer. But um, I feel as though the more problems that tech tries to address, the more people realize that tech can address problems. Mm. And so I think that slowly but surely, we're checking a lot of boxes. And I feel like the thing we need to do is bring more people in the game. Because the more people are often best at solving the problems that they know or that their friends and families have. Right. And so the more people we bring into this game, the more problems we will attempt to solve and the more problems we'll make progress on. And in many ways, I see governments being more like the legal system. Um, in the legal system in the context of tech is this thing that can slow, slow you down if you let it. But basically, you just assume that like either you won't be successful, in which case no one's going to sue you, or you will be successful, in which case you can fight it off, or right. you can you know you can you can do the things you need to do to protect yourself from the legal system. In many ways, I feel like politics is the same way. It's like you don't look to politics for the solution. If you're not successful, you don't need politics help anyways. If you are successful, once you're successful, they're going to want to partner with you. And, you know, to help kind of formalize some of the things you've been doing. So, um, yeah. And, and there are major holes in that. Because right now, the group of people looking to solve problems, there are huge sets of problems they're not looking to solve. But I think, awkwardly, it is improving. Like, awkwardly, like, you know, I see startups today that are trying to extend credit to the unbanked. Mm-hmm. Um, and not and not maliciously, mm-hmm. not payday loan style, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, to me, like like people are starting to realize this is an important tool, and I, and it's interesting because I think that a lot of the smart, capable people are being drawn out of politics and into purpose driven mm. startups because that's those are the people getting things done. So what? How well do you think tech is self-governing? So let me give you just two examples. Like, again, we talked about the most recent situation with the leaks. Yep. There's other stories saying, oh, Facebook actually has human editors decide what shows up in people's news feeds. And so if you think about as companies get bigger and they become platforms that service 500 million to a billion users, and a lot of the ways they control information dissemination, you look at the situation where, you know, the government was looking to have Apple unlock a phone so they can get information about someone who had gone out and committed a crime, and they said no. Yeah. And they're wrestling back and forth. What's your What's your opinion on the governing of tech? Because tech will always be ahead of where kind of laws are. And so, what type of constructs do you think make sense for to reconcile the two? I think. Um. I don't know. I think that delay is okay. Hmm. Like, I agree that it's a delay, but I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's more than a delay. I think that, you know, eventually the people in government, um, you know, recruit the next crop. Those people who grew up with the internet, they grew up with phones. And yes, there'll be some new tech thing there. But like, you know, tech is more and more being exposed to everyone's life at everyone's level. Mm -hmm. And so I feel as though a lot of the tech we're talking about, the people who are regulating are going to be users. So it won't have to be this massive generation gap. Um, uh, You know, it's like one thing to say that like, 
you own a 46 computer in, you know, 1990, I don't know, uh, 1994, mm-hmm. right? Like, why would you own that if you were some, you know, person who didn't like computers, right? right? But, like, the equivalent today is, like, you can not like computers, but you still like Uber. Right. <laughs> right. So, That's right. That's right. Um, so, yeah, so I guess I'm not too worried about it. Like, and I also feel like, you know, the one thing I appreciate about government is that while it is inefficient, it does still have kind of power. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that you do have to interact with. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, you know, the, those interactions help kind of clarify what the regulation is going to be. And you can fight in that arena. And I do feel like it's like, I don't want to say it's like a fair arena, but it's like an arena with fairly defined rules. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, God, it's sad. Like, this sounds like all kinds of Republican stuff. Like, I'm still a Democrat. What like, <laughs> small government? Not even small government. It's just more like a lack of faith in government. Like, I would be, I, I don't <clears throat> mind big government. Like, give me some big government. Right now, we just have like dysfunction in government. Big competent, competent government. <laughs> competent is, government. Is the main yeah. Piece. It's like, and, and, and I think more what I've realized is that the competence comes from the people and the incentives. Mm. And I think what I didn't ever understand about government is that, like, I only understood it when it came to companies. You know, we talk about, like, you know, A, a companies recruit A players, and mm-hmm. A players recruit other A players, mm-hmm. right? I think it's extremely hard if you're government right now to recruit A players. Yeah. How do you run a competent system if you don't have the best and the brightest? Um, and then secondly, incentives. Like, <laughs> there's a massive incentive to be reelected in this government, and there's a set of things you have to do that have nothing to do with governing, yeah. fundraising, yeah. Um, to be reelected. And like, we're basically taking the people who we say are supposed to represent us and we're taking them out of the office. We're taking them away from the books they need to read, away from the meetings they need to have to, to, to do this fundraising bullshit. Um, yeah. So to me, it's like, if you build an incompetent organization, you can't be surprised it doesn't produce good work. Right, and incentives, you know, Pretty much, people are going to act towards the incentives. It's the startup. We I mean, always talk to the startup where it's like they've outsourced all their engineering. It's like, huh? <laughs> so you're compensated with stock, but the people who build your product get paid up front. How's that work? Yeah. yeah. How's, how's that end up? <laughs> all right. So two things I want to talk about before we close out. Sure. Um, we talked about basically the power of tech and tech almost us, you know, almost relying or having to rely on tech to solve a lot of the problems that government can't yeah. can't get to. Yeah. Is is you know too much in the lockstep to, to to break out and, and think about it objectively. Participation in tech by everyone in the U.S. Yes. What is your current evaluation of where we are there? And um, if you had to make an assessment on what you felt was the most important slash urgent um, thing that needed to be done to make sure that we got to the place you thought we should be, what would that be? I guess to me, there's two problems. I think there's the one problem is that um, when you look at women and underrepresented minorities, um, the best and the brightest of that group are not being provided with up-to-date information. Give me more. Um, When I went to school, if you're from those communities and you were able to break out, your parents wanted you to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And that was perceived as the, the way to kind of create a kernel of wealth and sustain it, to kind of create a strong foundation. And um, 
you know, you have to add kind of tech to that world. You have to add that. Um, it's a it's a growth business, and it does require a lot of people. And so, you know, for the best and the brightest, they all should be coming here. And um, I think there are other organizations that have gotten very good at recruiting them. Um, and unfortunately, they're putting them in jobs that while they're not dead-end jobs, I don't think they're jobs that add. The finance community is amazing at recruiting Unrepresented minorities. I mean, I mean, I'm not saying the numbers are at parity, but like compared to tech, better. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think they're basically giving them dead end jobs, and um, so I think that's that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing is um, education is spread inequitably in this country, and so um, there are so many problems that we have to solve to make it so that um, there are more qualified um, underrepresented minorities. With that being said, when you look at the numbers today in the tech community, we're not even doing a good job of getting the qualified folks. So I always hate this pipeline argument because I think it's bullshit. I think that um, tech companies are being outcompeted for the best and brightest underrepresented minorities. They're not losing them because they don't exist. They're losing them because they're going other places. Mm. And they might be going to those places because those places are more diverse. They might go to those places because their parents are telling them to go to those places. They might be going to those places because they're more on the East Coast. There are lots of reasons, but like, um, they're not coming here as much as they should. So, um, yeah, to me, kind of that's that's kind of a, a a big thing, and I think that it's hard. But like, the one thing I've realized is that there's a very big difference in your mentality. If you feel as though you have a safety net, or if you feel as though you don't, um, if you feel as though you have a safety net, or you feel like you have to be the safety net for your family, mm-hmm. there's an extremely difference different difference in mentality, and like. Um, the tech world has to be able to market to people in underrepresented communities, market itself to those people and explain to them why this is a safe job, why this is a good job, why this is a better job than those other traditional jobs. Like it's got to be able to do that. And I don't think it is because like there are so many like I went to Yale, you know, the, the underrepresented minorities who are there were disproportionately good at math and science. <laughs> like that's how you get into a place right. like Yale. Right. Like right. 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 Um, right. almost none of them did tech. So it sounds like the me- so and I, I agree with everything you're saying. It sounds like the message that you're saying is a lot of ways catering to places where it's not riskier than going elsewhere. But would you throw startups in that equation? And when I say startups, I mean, you know, Series A. Series B? Um, I think it depends on what your skill set is. I think that if you have a CS skill set, doing a startup isn't risky at all. Mm. Um, tech is a growth industry, and if you want to jump back into the Googles and the Facebooks and the wherever you can. Um, and you know, startups are paying better and better now. Um, and they're giving, they're giving away equity more and more, more and more um, equitably. So um, I think that if you're not a tech uh, person, if you're not a programmer, 
Startups are more risky. Yeah. Um, yeah, this whole emphasis on STEM education is like really funny because I feel like it's um, it's too broad. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I, I have thoughts on that as well. So me being a non-engineer, <clears throat> I hear, you know, I'm not going to name any companies' names, but you hear about the pipeline issue being the reason. But the majority of jobs at these tech companies are, are non-engineer, That's right? definitely true. Ops, marketing, BD, legal. sales, legal. I mean, marketing, the, the list goes on and on. Yeah. And so when you look at the numbers across those categories, the, you know, there's not qualified candidate argument kind of goes out the window. And so the question becomes, back to your original point, what are we doing to actually capture these folks in these roles? And let's, before we get to the STEM argument, let's make some progress in those areas as well because we can't hold the show exactly. for the STEM pipeline argument. And, and I think also, I think these companies don't realize the effect. I don't think the companies realize that if they hire people in those communities to work at a technology company, what would their kids understand? Hmm. And like... Um, it's easy to see this in the one three year, you know, spectrum, but it's like there's so many multiplying effects here. And like you can't tell me that if you get someone to move out here and work at one of these technology companies, that doesn't affect how their family and their friends see tech forever. Right. And you That's know, that point. trains a whole generation of programmers that you don't even see. Um, and so you know, but we were talking about government. Like, to me, the crazy thing is, like, if if CS was just the, the fourth core in school, or fifth core, right? If it was history, science, math, um, English, and, and, and CS, a lot of these problems would be solved. Hmm. A lot of these problems would be solved. Hmm. Um, there's no denying there's going to be an ever more increasing need for great developers and it's kind of a joke yeah. that like we can't adjust our education system to accommodate that so what's the we talked about what um what folks should do to recruit talent what do you think is the most urgent and important move that uh like you know the person that doesn't really know what tech is but they hear you they, they believe that there's opportunity there what's the what's the thing that they should do get a job in san francisco just i move, mean move to the move to move the, here to, to you know Silicon it's Valley. um you know i firmly believe that there are core cities in this country um if you want to be in finance you probably should be in new york if you want to be in entertainment it's hard not to be in la if you want to be in government like you know dc is at least traditionally at. <laughs> the place where it's at <laughs> And if you want to be in tech, you have to be in the Bay Area. And not, not to say there aren't opportunities otherwhere, other places, but if you want full-on immersion, um, get yourself here in whatever role you can. Mm. And am I going to argue this is the best place in the world to live? No, especially if you're underrepresented minority. Right. No, but like, make some choices. Yeah, you know, it it's here. Yeah. <laughs> like, like yeah. you know, and like... Um, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of founders and a lot of people who want the, the you know, the on-ramp, the nice setup. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of companies in other industries kind of pitch this perfect on-ramp. And, like, tech doesn't necessarily always have the best on-ramp, especially for non-programmers. Mm -hmm. But um, if you don't like it, you can always move back. <laughs> You're like, listen, just get out here, figure it out. Yeah, be, take, be take, here. Take the shot. And, 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 you know, some people can't be here. But if you can get yourself here, but you're just, like, complaining, 
then like you're just shitting on the person who can't get themselves mm. here. And I've seen people get themselves here from all different walks of life, all different socioeconomic status. People say it's expensive. Is there any core city in America that isn't expensive? Is there any city where shit's happening that isn't expensive? Like you're going to have to figure out expensive city no matter where you go. And it's expensive for a reason. People want to be here. All right. To round out, let's talk about you're in tech, you're immersed, you see everything. What are you most excited about? We talked about Zenesis, we talked about Vote.org, because these were kind of like in your wheelhouse, things that you would have done had you still been yeah. kind of in the game. But generally speaking, like what, what are some companies, what are some, what are the, you know, the specific tech focuses, whether AI or whatever, that you are like really excited about right now? So this is the thing that's really hard for me because I don't follow tech trends. I don't really believe in them. Mm. Um, people always ask me, founders specifically, what do we invest in? What, in, what things do we like? What I tell them is that the people who start companies are the best index on what's interesting. And so when founders came, whatever founders bring to us, that's what we now think is interesting. Um, and so that's it. Like our interest is based on your interest. It's not the other way around. Um, and many things that seem obvious in hindsight don't seem obvious in the time. So we're not gonna see 30% of the next YC class being uh, AR, geo games like Pokemon the Go? The only, well, here's the thing, like if 30% of the applicants are building AR Pokemon Go games, then yeah, you will. Hmm. So, you know, the real, the real way to ask this question is to survey the 6,000 companies that apply to YC and ask them what do they give a shit about? Because hmm. that's, you will see a representative sample in YC. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Um, so yeah, like we don't believe in that stuff. So you're excited about good founders, basically. Just good founders who like show the capacity to get things done. You know, the doers, not the talkers. Um, and, I, and I don't think about YC as producing mega companies. Like the, it's like, do YC, massive cloud of question marks, mm -hmm. Dropbox, Stripe, Airbnb, mm -hmm. Instacart, da, 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 right? You know, it's mm -hmm. like, it's like, mm -hmm. like we're, you know, this isn't like, uh, people always are like, oh, you worked with the Airbnb guys early on. Like, how'd you know they were going to be right. Airbnb? I was like, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> But no you, you, were you, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't you one of the, the folks who kind of uh, really advocated for the Airbnb? Yeah, I mean, I helped them get into YC and, and, you know, I helped them out for, you know, kind of the first year. Um, but like I see, I, I always saw that as part of my responsibility as a founder. Like I think one of the things that in the startup community, not the tech community, the startup community, um, that's core is this feeling that you give back to the community. Mm -hmm. um, I always tell people like I, my perception of the East Coast business world is you give back by giving the charity. My perception <laughs> of the West Coast startup world is you give back by investing time and money mm. in the other people in your industry. Mm. And um, people have helped me for no anything. And so, you know. I was actually talking to Dave and Song from Squire, who are now in um, YC, yeah. they, they mentioned that you actually said that the best advisors would do it for no equity. <laughs> something, something along the lines of that, because they're doing it because, you yeah. know, they want to help. They want to help. Basically. They're not trying to make advising their business. <laughs> right, right, right. Which, um, which is funny because that definitely disrupts some people that are going around making businesses out of uh, advising now. Yeah, you know, so. is what it is. 
Well, Mike, it was uh, it was a pleasure, a real, a real pleasure. Um, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really appreciate it. I hope that kind of the gems you shared as a founder, as someone who thinks, you know, politically and someone who sees kind of the future. Um, I hope that this really, really is uh, it resonates and is helpful for for the audience. So thanks again. This is a lot of fun. Thanks really for having me. And that concludes the third and final part of the Michael Seibel episode of the Series B show hosted by me, Brandon Jones. Please check out SeriesBshow.com to find more information about Michael and ways to contact him and hear about some of the work he's doing at Y Combinator to increase access for founders of various um, you know, races, genders, and also countries. So um, check that out, and I hope you enjoyed. And always remember, be true, be you.